Today on Pens Exchange, the effects of winning the lottery. Welcome to Pence Exchange, the forum where we discuss everything related to the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. Today we will be joined by Alejandro Martinez Marquina. He's an assistant professor at the Marshall School of Business at the University of Southern California. Alejandro received his PhD in economics from Stanford University. Previously, he also served as the Clarman Fellow at Cornell University. His research interests are eclectic in between the role of uncertainty in decision-making the impact of sudden wealth shocks, and the transmission of gender norms. Welcome, Alejandro. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's very much my pleasure. Well, disparities have been a core phenomenon that economists have been interested in since the beginning of our profession. How to overcome them has been a problem we have tried to solve for at least the past 100 years. In the last decades, cash transfer policies have been popularized worldwide. Today, we will be joined by Alejandro Martinez Marquina, who will talk to us about his research on wealth shocks and their economic effects. Let's start with a broad question, Alejandro, just to frame the discussion. In pure theoretical terms, what are the potential pitfalls, problems, but also advantages of unconditional cash transfers in reducing wealth and income disparities among individuals within a society? Uh, yeah, so I think the advantages here are relatively quite simple. So in economics, we are always talking about a budget constraints constantly, which, which basically means is that sometimes you cannot afford something that you want or something that you need. And while some and the, the poorer you are, the more the more likely this is to happen. So while some of these things that you can afford can be a bit inconsequential, maybe you want to go to a restaurant to get a fancy dinner and you cannot afford that. Other things can be very important. You could imagine that your car breaks down and you cannot go to work and then and earn an income anymore. And if you cannot afford to fix your car, actually, it's a very it's a very bad thing. So basically, many governments realize that well, it's very hard for me to realize when you actually need the money or not. So why I just I just don't give you an unconditional cash transfer, hoping that I get you the money at the right time. At the, uh, to the right person, so then you can actually overcome these things. So that's the advantage. The disadvantage is actually it's really hard to time these transfers and to target them to people at the right time for them to be very useful. So it might not if I give you cash and your car is not broken, well, maybe you can spend that money in a fancy dinner that's going to be great for you, but it's not obvious that it's going to be good in the long term to reduce wealth inequality. An interesting finding in your research, which we will talk just about in a moment, is that you end up claiming that the effects of these wealth transfers in underdeveloped and developed societies are different. Why is that? Yes. So yes. So yes. You know, yes obviously, this is one interpretation that I do at the end. I mean, I mean, the main objective of the paper is not talking about this, but it's true that we find this contrast. And while this is purely speculation, I think the main reason why this is the case is because of access to credit. Uh, one concern in poor countries is that maybe you are not able to afford very worthwhile investments. For example, you maybe cannot buy fertilizer for your farm, or maybe you cannot obtain higher education, even in the case where it will help you tremendously. 
This is not the case in a developed country where you can borrow money to do all these things. If you want to go to college, you can ask for a student loan. If you have a very good idea for a business and others also think it's a good idea, you may be able to borrow. So the idea is that, well, in the cases where there's no access to a credit market, maybe these wealth transfers can act as a substitute of those of those credit markets and then can be very helpful. But if you already have access to credit markets, it's not so obvious that cash wealth transfers are going to have the same impacts. So I think that's one of the reasons why potentially we are finding that in developing countries or in the developing context, like the, the effects are different. Okay, but if that were the only problem, then there would not be any difference between conditional cash transfers and unconditional, right? I mean, they should have they should serve the same purpose. I mean, depends on how people uh, how people use them. Like, for example, one of the issues with unconditional cash transfers, for example, there's this idea in the US of SNAP program where you can give get vouchers for food. These are the cases in which the government is concerned that people might misuse the money. So say, okay, I want to make sure that you get well fed. So I'm just going to restrict what you do. The problem with this is that. Uh, there's many times that the governments lack the information or what is better for subjects, for individuals to do. And if I, if the thing is that, yeah, so it's, it, don't, governments don't have the information about, about what subjects could do. And then it's just very hard. I think that's then what the governments sometimes want to restrain the, the capacity that you can do. Also because sometimes politically, these are things that are easier to convince people. It's very easy. I mean, it's much easier for the general population to convince, hey, we're going to give food vouchers to people that don't have enough to eat rather than say we're going to give them $200, $300 just because they're poor. I think there's a lot of things to uh, to consider here. But, and also it's just, yeah, the re there's not really that much research done with unconditional cash transfers because they're just not that common. So then let's talk about your research, the particularly the recent paper about the lottery. A key aspect of it is that it focuses not on individuals, but on town-level effects. That is, the effects on the community as a whole after wealth shock occurs. What makes this relevant, different, compared to the, different, the traditional literature focusing on the specific people receiving the transfers? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are by no means the first people to write a paper about like lottery winners. There's a big literature on this. So I think the main two differences is there are two things. One is who receives, uh, who receives these shocks and also the effects that these shocks can have. And about the first, what happens is that in most of the lottery, individual lottery papers, the winners are extremely selective. Like we know by all means that people that play the lottery, for example, in the US, uh, less than 15% of the population play the Powerball. These are people that are very, very selective. They tend to come from poorer economic, uh, socioeconomic status. They tend to be less educated and they might also be like more risk-seeking than the average person. So then so there's some anecdotal evidence that's also backed by research that shows that actually many of these winners in a few years Actually, they are in a very bad financial uh, situation because they, they spend their money. They just don't know how to, I mean, they just suddenly find themselves in this situation and they just go crazy and spend a lot of money. This is not our case. In our case, we have that the people that receive these shocks are not selected at all because of the way that the Spanish lottery works, which I'm sure we'll talk in, in a bit. We have that three out of four adults in the country play. So there's no selection, almost no selection on who wins. The average Spaniard place this lottery. And then we think this is important because the effects we think might be very different. It's very different if you win the lottery when you are like single, young, and then you are very risking that, for example, if a family with two children that has a business wins the lottery, we think the effects can be very different. That's number one, who wins the lottery. The second thing is the effects that we think 
the lottery can have. If one person wins the lottery, well, maybe this person is going to buy a few fancy cars, maybe a couple of apartments, but that's very unlikely to affect the economy of the entire town. It's very unlikely to affect that the population dynamics, the labor market of the entire town is really, really rare. However, when you have a situation in which many, and by many, I mean many, many people in the same location win, then, well, then now suddenly this becomes feasible and it's indeed what we find, that there's these effects in the labor market, real estate, migration patterns, that, and so on. That's, those, I think, are the main two differences with respect to the other papers on the lottery. Okay, let's talk about the setting specifically, the Christmas lotteries in Spain. What makes it special to analyze the effects that you told us? One, what are the consequences of wealth transfers? Yes, yeah, so, so the main challenge with when we're trying to study wealth transfer is that two things. That first, these are usually, the timing is not, it's very particular. Like usually the way, the, the, the time when these transfers are given, these policies, is in times of big economic recessions. And not only that, they're also sometimes very targeted. So it's very hard to say this one's work or not. If I give you money at a time of a very severe economic recession, and then you don't end up doing so well, you don't know if it's because of the wealth transfer or it's because there was an economic recession. The good thing about our case is that we don't have any of those issues in the sense that these transfers have been given every year for, the, for more than 100 years, and also they are allocated randomly. This is indeed a lottery. So we will talk about a bit more about the details how it works, but basically you could think about it a few towns get randomly selected and you give money to a lot of people. So we have no selection on who gets this and we have that the timing is completely random, which is going to be very helpful for us to understand the causal effects of this because you're going to say, well, I give you money in a recession or money not in a recession. So we're going to be able to see what happens there. And we know this has nothing to do with like if people politically support this or not. This is absolutely random. And, that's, and the second thing, before I forget, is that there are no strings attached. This is, here's a bunch of cash. You can do whatever you want with it. So while some of the other policies, they only allow you to spend, for example, more money on food, here is not the case. Here, people can do whatever they want with, with the money, which is also going to be revealing to see what actually people will do in cases where you implement these policies. Can you talk us a bit about the history of the lottery, how it came to be? Why is there such a participation rate among Spanish population compared to the U.S., as you said? And do you see regionalized effects across Spain in northern and in the southern? I'm very glad you asked me this because I, I, I'm very much in love with history. And I think the history of this particular lottery, at least for me, was quite interesting. So this is a lottery that actually came to be at a very particular point in history. This started in 1812. That was at the time that Spain was fighting the independence war against the Napoleon's like Grand Armée, the, the big army. And this was the time where the Spanish government fled the capital and went to one of the most southern cities in Spain, Cadiz. And there was one minister that have came with the idea that in order to increase the tax revenue, maybe we could create this lottery when people will willingly participate and then we will get some money that we could use to actually help the war effort. So... And that's basically how they how start how they created it. It was this ministry in this time of war that decided to do it. So what was interesting about it is that they basically have a series of let's say one thousand numbers from zero from one to one thousand, and they create different copies of each number. So it's this idea that if you you were buying a copy of a number, and if you win, you are entitled to a fraction. Of the total pie. So, for example, in the Powerball, if your number is drawn, you share the pie 
with everybody else that has the same number. Here is not the case. Here, if you buy a number and your number wins, this is a fixed price. Doesn't matter if we play the same number or we play different numbers. If my, if I have one winning number, my price doesn't depend on anybody else. And this is and this will matter. And we we'll talk about it in a second. So what happened is that because this lottery was created at this crucial point in history, there was this attachment that oh, this is the lottery that helped us defeat the French, which is obviously not true. It's an exaggeration, but you know, there's this kind of it became part of the Spanish mythos of how the nation came to be. So this became really, really popular. I mean, in the next 20, 30 years, I mean, starting in the South and expanded to the entire country. And it became so popular that people were concerned that they were becoming uh, addicts and they were gambling too much. So then in 1862, the government said, well, in order to discourage people from playing too much, let's increase the cost of each ticket so the poor people cannot play. And what, what it was funny about this is that actually they managed to create the opposite effect, that now poor people started, started pulling their money together to actually share numbers. So then now suddenly you have that there's this social pressure that if all your friends are pulling the money to play a particular number, you also want to play that number. Because basically, this, because of this historical accident, Spain ended up creating what I like to call the only lottery for risk-averse people. Like basically, if all your friends play and you don't play, and if they win, you're going to be the poorer, the poorest among your friends. So you could imagine that this lottery acts a, as an insurance against inequality uh, from your friends. So there's a lot of social pressure to play. This is what makes that almost 80% of the adults play this, because if all your friends, all your family are playing a number, you also want to play. And what is interesting about this is that this is has become extremely profitable for the Spanish government, but this was not a conscious design. This was something that happened because they increased the ticket expenditure. It's basically a historical accident. So that's how the, the lottery became to me. In terms of what you were asking me about, if there's any differences across regions, basically the, there's difference obviously between different provinces, which ones play more or less, but the actual differences are coming more from towns. You can have towns that are like 20 miles apart from each other that play very differently. And the reason for that is usually sometimes like it's historical accidents. And I can give you an example, I think illustrates this very well. There's a town in Catalonia uh, whose name is Short, which in Catalan means lack. So this was a town that is relatively small, like 2,000 people. And they were not playing the lottery that much, but then in 1991, out of luck, they just won the lottery. And then everybody went crazy. Oh, a town named Luck won the lottery. This must be the luckiest town ever. So then everybody started going to that town to buy lotteries like crazy. And because they were selling so many tickets, two, three years later, I mean, eventually they won again. So now suddenly this is a lucky town and then you just observe like very high lottery expenditures forever. So again, these patterns across regions, they have a lot to do with these historical accidents. Maybe you won in the past and then suddenly everybody likes the lottery now and they keep playing forever and eventually they will win again, which kind of reinforce this mechanism. In terms of the institution itself, is this lottery administered by the Spanish state or by autonomous communities or are there any private parties involved? Could you tell us a bit about the organization from the supply yeah, side? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So this this is actually owned by the Spanish government. They make a lot of money every year because of this. So it's owned by the Spanish government, but the vendors are private. However, in order to become a lottery vendor, 
you need to go through a through a through an elicitation process, and then if you get accepted, you can get a license. So only licensed vendors can can buy these tickets. And what is interesting about this is that in many of the in other lotteries, for example, the Powerball, you can go to any lot vendor and you can choose your numbers. This is not the case here. Here, what happens is that each lottery vendor gets a particular set of numbers. So when you want you go to these vendors to purchase a number, you only have a few options available. This is done because then it's easier to coordinate. If you know if the vendor in your town has the number 1,200, well, it's very easy for you to coordinate because they have many copies of that one. So that's basically uh, why this is the case. But it, what it also is make, it makes it very, very interesting is that each vendor is unique. So there's this kind of idea that creating a spend that this lottery tourism, that if you go to Madrid, you go to a vendor in Madrid and you buy a, a number there because that's a number that you cannot find in your location. And that's kind of going to be important because what happens is that when a number is drawn, because all, most of all the numbers are sold in the same vendor, basically everybody holding a winning ticket, they're going to live in the same location. That's why we have that these shocks are geographically clustered. So that's one thing. And the second thing is that this actually is a lottery that in terms of the expected return, it's actually not that bad. Like basically on average for every euro, every dollar that you spend, you are expected to receive like 70 cents back. Uh, the, uh, the way you receive this is a one-time payment. I mean, how to process this is really simple. You just go to any bank with your ticket and they just basically they put the money in your account. Like the whole system is very well thought. It's really easy to process the payments. But what is important is this is a one-time payment. Like you get, uh, you get on average 10 times the, your yearly income once. That's all this lottery does. So, which is a big difference with some of the cash policies, which are annuity that are paid a bit over time. This is not the case. This is just one lump sum. And is there any correlation between participation and the macroeconomic conditions? You yes. So, so with the macroeconomic levels, it's, the story is actually uh, it's actually not so clear. There is not a clear correlation in the sense that you see, for example, after the two thousand eight crisis lottery expenditures went down because basically people have less available cash, less cash at hand. So they were a bit more constrained so that they cut expenditure on the lottery. So usually you will mind that these things are somehow negatively correlated. But there's some anecdotic, anecdotal evidence that actually shows that in towns where there was a natural disaster, for example, a big fire or a flood, then lottery expenditure skyrockets. Basically, there's many Spaniards that have this idea of like karma, luck, that if something bad happened to me, that means the universe is going to make it right by making me winning the lottery. And we have a couple of cases where that did happen. You actually read in the news that this town that was hit by a big fire this year or by a earthquake actually won the lottery because somebody was playing so much. That also comes to the idea of reinforcing this. But this is something anecdotal. I mean, we don't have that many cases where this happens. But that's one of some of the correlations that you find, that people try to compensate for a disaster by doing this. But in general, when you have a long recession, uh, lottery expenditures go down. So you said that most of the Spaniards actually play the lottery. But do you see any specific um, profile that particularly likes? You probably said that risk covers people play it a lot. But you, in terms of age, for example, do young people play it more or less compared to old people? Yeah, so there's usually, as I said before, there's 80% of the population plays. So there's not that much uh, difference, but uh, but uh, people that play are a bit selective in the sense that you find some 
small effects on participation for very wealthy people. If you are very wealthy, you are less likely to play, but it's not a big difference. The main difference is coming from a young people. Like young people tend to play less. And this makes sense when you think about this social pressure mechanism because uh, some of the some of the social environments that push you into play are these environments where young people are less likely to be. For example, it's very common that if you have kids that go to a school, you play a lottery number with other parents in the school. Maybe you can also share a number with people in church, maybe also from the co-workers in your company. And you, if you are young, you are less likely to be in those social groups, so then you are less likely to play. But we see that as people become older and you know they, be, they start below in the, those groups, they basically catch up. So what I mean is there's not this long-standing trend that people are playing the, less the lottery over time. You don't have that. You have like young people play less, but as they become older, they play as much as the previous generation. Okay, let's talk more about your research in specific. You collected data on lottery-winning towns for a century, then compared them with non-winning towns with an equal probability of winning. What did you find? What were the short and long-run economic effects of winning the lottery? Yes, so because it was much easy, it's much easier to get data on town-level data for recent years, what we did is we split our analysis on let's look at what happens in towns that won in the last 30 years, and then let's look at what happens in towns that won in the last 130 years. So for the towns that won in recent years, at the beginning, you find you know some of the things that you will expect. Like some people purchase more cars, they buy another house, they buy land, they even buy more lottery. But what it, when it, so this is something kind of expected, that you just consume more. What was interesting is that you could, I was thinking, oh, maybe some people are going to use this money to open a new business or expand the business they already have. We do not find that. We find, if anything, it's the opposite, that some people say, oh, I'm going to downsize and maybe I'm not going to work so much. Maybe I'm going to close my company. So there's actually less people working. And what I, and what I think becomes, or I think the, the, the most, what surprised me the most was that when we look at, you could imagine that these people that live in these locations, sometimes these locations are like not the most prosperous ones. Sometimes they're like dying towns with lose, that are losing population. You will imagine that now you have this money, you can reallocate somewhere else. That's not the case. It's not that now I'm wealthy, I'm going to move to my town to another town uh, or maybe to a big city to better opportunities. People do not do that. We don't find any evidence of any exodus from this town. However, what we find is that now less people move to these locations. And while we cannot perfectly pin down the mechanism because we have things happening at the same time, you know, remember we have that there are less businesses, like people are closing some businesses, so there are less economic opportunities. Maybe there are less jobs available, available. But at the same time, many people are using the lottery earnings to buy apartments, to buy land, which is putting pressure on real estate. So this is a location where that has worse job opportunities and higher real estate prices. And these two forces actually could explain why you observe less people moving to these towns. And what is also interesting about this is that this kind of reinforces the, the, the shrinking labor force. You have that less people work because of the lottery. And on top of that, less people move to the town that were going to be working. Then actually you have that the labor force shrinks even more. So basically, towns that were in the recent years, we find that people consume more, you have pressure on prices, but it's not necessarily good for the economy overall. So then we start thinking, well, this kind of seems like a very, like not the most exciting news for, for people that defend these policies. So listen, well, the next thing that we did was 
let's try to look if in the last 130 years there was a point in history where we find something different, when we find that this is helpful. And there was only one case where we actually found that this lottery have big effects and they were very positive and very persistent over time. And this was since 1940 until 1960. Uh, here we find that towns that won the lottery compared to the ones that did not, actually 60 years later, they have a population that is 35% larger. So this is a huge difference in population. And you see that this divergence happens slowly over time. Like 20 years later, it's 15%. 40 years later is 25%, 60 years is 35%. So these are different towns. They, they go in a different path. And while we cannot know for sure why is that this particular point in history make the lottery different, we think it's because there was a huge recession. This was the time, this was after the Spanish Civil War, where the country was pretty much destroyed. And we think that basically what happened is that you got the lottery money at the right time, which was right after the war. And then many people that otherwise would have migrated to other locations like Madrid, Barcelona, maybe to another country because the economy was really in shambles. Because of this money, they were able to basically survive this period until the country recovered and then they stay in the same place. And we think this is interesting because, well, now we found this, this particular case where the wealth stocks are very effective. How generalizable is this? Do we see this in other contexts? This is what I think is nice. Now that we found this particular case study, hopefully this is going to inspire other people to look at other cases like this. In terms of the history of the lotteries, has the lottery been played continuously since its inception? It existed during the Civil War, right? Yeah, yeah. So actually what is very funny about the Civil War is because the, the country was divided in two factions. So actually each faction ran their own uh, lottery that year. So it's not that... The country actually had two lotteries that year. But yeah, this is, if actually you look at the, we had data on the participation rates at the country level. We don't have data on the town level for the entire history, but we, we know we had the historical trend for the entire period. You do not really see that much of a drop uh, during the Spanish Civil War. I mean, obviously people play slightly less because there's uh, economic conflict, but you don't see that the participation collapses. That actually people are still playing this. This is very constant throughout history. If anything, it has even become a bit more popular over the years. Previously, we talked about differences in the effects of wealth shops conditional on the level of development. Would you say, for example, that Spain in the 40s in the civil war could be considered an underdeveloped society? Or perhaps the larger question I'm asking is, what do your historical findings contribute to the overall discussion? Yes, so... So that's a tricky question because I think whether Spain was developed or not at the time, it depends on what you are comparing Spain to. I mean, if, if you compare it to, let's say, US, France, UK, and Germany, sure, absolutely. I mean, Spain was not as developed as those countries. But if you compare Spain at the time with countries that today we consider underdeveloped, then Spain was not. Like, for example, Spain had like they have a lot of industry, they have railroads, they have a functioning a banking system, obviously, you know, far from perfect, but, you know, they have these institutions in place. So what I think is, what I think are historical evidence more than showing this idea of develop versus underdevelop, I think it shows this idea that context matters. Like, we started this project with the idea that are wealth transfers helpful? And what basically we are seeing is that the answer is not a simple yes or a simple no. It's this idea that context matters. Uh, within the value here is that we have shown you a very specific point in history 
where these well socks are very helpful. Now that we know that there might be a case in which they are helpful, now we can see, okay, now we have seen this. Can we see this happening elsewhere? Like, for example, do we have that in other big recessions, we find that wealth transfers have the same effect? For example, COVID-19. I mean, COVID-19, I think, is a book example of a very large but temporary negative shock where many governments have implemented a lot of wealth transfers. So, well, if we see that in COVID-19, these wealth transfers have a similar effect that what we find there, then, well, we have a one particular case study, but now that we have the COVID, now we have two. And I think eventually the value of this sort of historical evidence is that once you start collecting many different cases, you start seeing patterns and then you actually think, okay, now we are starting learning something. I think that's what I think is the value here, that now that we have this particular case study, we can start thinking of more cases where we, fa- we find a similar pattern. That's a perfect way to bridge into the end of our discussion. I would like to ask a final one. Based on your findings, are you broadly skeptical about the role of transfers in reducing wealth disparities? Yes, so 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 yeah, so actually it's very I'm very glad you asked me this because at the beginning of this project, me and my co-author, uh, we were all like very uh, positive on this. We were very excited about this UBI, like universal basic income policies. We thought this was a fantastic idea, and we were expecting, oh, this project is actually gonna show how helpful they are, how prosperous these locations become. So it was very surprising that for us, I think this was a case when they, I, I mean, we found what we found. And actually, once I saw the results that we had, actually, I made some introspection. I thought, oh, maybe now I'm a bit more skeptical about uh, about like large wealth transfer policies like UBI. That doesn't mean I'm against, but now I'm way more cautious than I was before. Because now we've seen that, well, at least in the Spanish context, if there's not a good reason to give money, if there's not a big recession, you're just basically causing inflation. Imagine you could, now I'm thinking more like, well, if we give UBI uh, $100 to each person, for example, and all rental prices go up by $100, it's like, well, that was the, what good are we doing by, by that? So now I'm way more skeptical uh, about this. But, and I, yes, so that has really, that has really changed for me, at least. And I think now I'm definitely more skeptical about about this which i think is nice i think because the thing is we are seeing more and more of these policies i mean if people say well we don't do large wealth transfers anymore and it's nice because this is a question that is much harder to answer in 2019 than in 2022 because now because of covid you have most gov- most big the economies in the world they have implemented like tremendous uh, wealth transfers actually this morning i was reading that california is going to do a 10 billion uh, wealth transfers so if anything, this is more relevant than ever. Uh, so I think I think I'm more skeptical about these policies, and that means that we need more research on this because governments are still doing that. So we need to learn a bit more about this. Great. Before we go, do you play the lottery? Yes and no. In the sense that I don't like to play, but my parents every year they buy a ticket on my behalf. And actually they send it to me. Like they send me a picture and actually they send me an envelope with the ticket. So even if I don't want to play, my parents force me to play. So yes, you could say that I play. Okay, thank you very much, Alejandro. It was fascinating talking to you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was it was an actual, it was very, very, very fun. Cash transfers have become a much-discussed policy tool that both policymakers and economic scholars are interested in. The empirical results of the many studies that exist so far are mixed. A specific recipe for the economic development of societies, 
remains, of course, elusive. What we now can say is that context matters. Economic history matters. This has been Pence Exchange, Markets and Cooperation, a podcast from the Penn Initiative for the Study of Markets at the University of Pennsylvania's Economics Department. Our goal is to bring a thoughtful, fact-based and entertaining discussion on the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. I am Fernando Arteaga, and I will be glad to hear from you. You can follow us on Instagram and on Twitter as at Penn underscore exchange. Stay tuned.